My name is Preston Grace, and I'd like to welcome you to the No Walls Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the No Walls Podcast. I'm here again with our student pastor here at The Brick, Taylor Otterbein. What's up, dude? How are you doing? What's up, my guy? I'm well. I'm well. I'm excited for today. Bro, I'm so excited for today because today we have a special guest and it is our lead pastor here at The Brick, Jared Callahan. What's up, man? How are you doing? I'm doing good. Good to join you guys. Yeah, we're excited to have you, man. Uh, so today, the topic we're going to talk about is kind of wrapped around mentorship. And so I heard a quote the other day from T.D. Jakes. If you don't know who T.D. Jakes is, he's a pastor. Uh, he's been around for a while. He's got some really good stuff. And he was talking about the story of Samuel and Eli. And he was saying that at first, Samuel couldn't differentiate between uh, Eli and God's voice. And he was saying that that's normally how mentorship starts. He was actually getting at that. That's actually how it's supposed to be at first. And so with us having Jared here, who has been a mentor uh, to Taylor for a long time and I wanted to start off by asking you, what do you think uh, makes a good mentor? Uh, what makes a good mentor? Um, I think the biggest thing for me, first and foremost, is that I know that they've got my back, that they want uh, to see my best in me. So if there is somebody that I'm thinking about, hey, I need to invest in that relationship, and I'm thinking through whether or not want whether or not I want to make that like an intentional mentorship. However, you do that, sometimes they come about by chance and sometimes they're more intentional but if you're thinking about that should I really invest in um, even asking this person like I need you to invest in me I need to open this door for you to speak into my life a little bit more clearly the first thing I'd want to know is that they have my best interest in mind and one of the phrases we try to say around here is um, we always want more for you than we want from you and so thinking through whether or not that's something that person would say, like, do they just need me to do a task because it's easier on their life if I show up and do things for them? Or do they want me to do things and they want me to thrive in those moments and grow and stretch? So um, that'd be the biggest thing. Yeah, that's really good. I think uh, I think something for me that makes a mentor great and something Jared's really good at is allowing people space to learn. At times when it comes to mentorship, I think we try to save people from failure um, because we want a lot for them. But what's actually happening is we're robbing people of the learning opportunity. Uh, There's a ton of moments where, like, Jared knew that something was probably not going to be the smoothest thing, but he let me kind of figure it out in the flow. I got to learn in that process, right? There's, there's, There's learning in the failure. And I think when a mentor doesn't allow the mentee to fail, then they really don't trust what they put in the mentee, I think. Like, if, if I don't trust you to try to run the play on your own, then uh, really I didn't do a good job as a mentor. And I think part of being a great mentor is really always allowing space um, for the individual part of someone to come to play, right? Like, your job as a mentor isn't just to make yourself a reflection. Your job as a mentor is to find what makes that person unique and give it all the room possible to grow. And a great mentor allows the best parts of themselves to be given to you, but also doesn't allow who they are to shrink back who you are. And so a beautiful mentor relationship is bringing the best out of the individual, but also giving the best of the mentor to the mentee, I think. So yeah, from a mentor perspective, with what Taylor's saying, the thing that I have to walk myself through if I've got somebody that I'm trying to develop or see them win 
is gauging the short-term versus the long-term wins. So you might fail now, but long-term is it helping you grow. So it's not a win just to see people fail, but if it is helping them learn how to grow and how to process difficult moments or grow and learn how to do something better the next time, uh, the failure is not actually a failure. It's a growth opportunity. So when you see somebody that you're saying, should I give them the chance to fail or is this scary? Because in the moment, it's it's something that matters. It's a Wednesday night for Switch or it's a worship song that they're leading. And it feels like the biggest thing in the world that they might fail. This is going to be a tragedy. But if I'm thinking short term, it's a tragedy. If I'm thinking long term, it's going to grow us. Then it's worth a possibility of a failure. I'm never trying to set somebody up for failure, but it is worth giving them a shot to see if they can pull it off or if they fail or mess up or make a mistake in the process that it's a long-term win to help walk them through on the back end, the feedback of how to not repeat that mistake, how to grow through it, how to understand your mistake is not a personal failure. It's a growth opportunity to grow from. So all of those perspectives, with the exception of like major risks, they're actually going to burn the building down. They're actually going to hurt somebody in the process. Those aren't worthy risks. But for the most part, I would rather give too much authority, give too much opportunity, and let people learn in the process and know that over a year's span, we're going to get better in worship. We're going to get better at our student ministry. We're going to get better uh, for any number of things inside of the church over the long term. And that's a bigger win for me than to know that I crushed it one Wednesday night or I crushed one song. Well, that's great, but nobody's learning and growing. So it's kind of stagnated or it's not got an opportunity to be as big as it can be or as good as it can be. That's some really good stuff. Whenever we actually had an episode where we talked a little bit about delegation of responsibility and how uh, there's there will be a dip in quality, but that's you're allowing that to be there with the hope that over time things will get better than they've ever been before. And so, uh, with us being on that topic, I, uh, one of the questions I have for you is, what do you do whenever you put someone in a, in a position to fail and they do fail? Like, how do you handle that? How do you give feedback? How do you? Um, that's kind of that's not a super. It's kind of an abstract. You know, it's not a super practical example. But like, what, what if you can give anything on that? What do you what do you have for that? Yeah, so the setup is is the most important part. If if they know going in that this is a feedback culture, which is what we call ourselves as a church, that we have a feedback culture, that we're going to process how things went and process how to make them better. If they know that going in, then hearing, here's what worked and here's what didn't work, it, they already know it's coming. So it's not as a, much of a shock to the system. So if you just go into a church and start giving feedback, all they're going to hear is like, why did you hate this place? I don't understand. But our church is set up to hear that. You know, Our church is set up to say, like, we'll shock people in the lobby. What did you love about our church and what did you hate? What was the thing that frustrated you, annoyed you? What 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 distracted you from the message or from worship? And people are like, "What am I allowed to tell you and usually they won't tell you the first time you ask them you have to keep asking a few weeks in a row and then they realize no I really want to know so that we can get better so when you create that culture or create that expectation for a sermon or for a song or for a ministry then when you come in on the back end you want to set them up to know that you're not trying to tell them what was wrong you're trying to help them get better so something that I've said to a lot of leaders on our team is I actually hear it as a as kind of a diss if you don't give me feedback what you're communicating to me is that's as good as you can ever do. You can't get better. 
Um, and that to me is like the worst thing you could say to me. That's the best sermon you're ever going to be able to do. You've peaked. You're not getting any better. You can't preach any better than that. So just stop trying because I don't have anything to tell you to get better. Um, that can That's really demoralizing for me. And so helping people understand the way that we view feedback is to help you win. We want to see you not just crush today, but continue to get better and continue to thrive. So if you have that expectation on the front end and you have clarity of communication to say, no, 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 I'm not telling you this because you were terrible. I'm telling you this because I know you can get even better than you already were. So maybe that message was an eight or a nine, but how do we get it to a 10? Maybe that song that you led really crushed, but here's a few parts where you could take it to the whole nother level. So if I'm saying it from a vantage point that I believe in you and I want to see you win and I want to see you grow, it can be received a lot better. um, And it has a hope to it and a belief in it that really once people buy into that culture and understand it, they thrive in it. They love it. Like, oh, no, give me feedback. How can I get better? At first, it takes a little bit of getting used to. But once you get used to it, it's a lot of fun. What created the desire for you to have that, right? When I got to the brick, the idea of feedback was so foreign to me. Like, I've just, I've never seen a context where that existed, where that was important. But now that I've been here, I see the benefit of it, right? Like, I, I, I need feedback in my life. And I'm a better father, husband, mentor, leader today because of it. And so I'm curious, like, what really created that drive for you? Like, where'd the idea of feedback come from? Why is it a passion of yours? Uh, Why do you fight so hard for it? Um, Where does that come from? Uh, So the, the most basic answer is I've seen it work. So that's why I would fight for it. It's why I enjoy it. I enjoy feedback because I want to get better. I don't ever want to stagnate. I want to, I want to grow. I want to do everything that God has called me to do with what I have. And to do that, I need to hear how I can get better. Um, and the longer answer may have to do with the church that I was at previously. I was on staff in, had a great feedback culture. And to see it you know, in action, it was just an eye-opening experience where I came from an, a church background that wasn't used to feedback. We just we did a sermon and and people would tell you how great it was no matter how bad it stunk, you know, and you'd, you would get some of the greatest accolades on your worst sermons because they were trying to build you up, make you feel better, which is fine in that moment until you actually listen to your own sermon and you find out you're a terrible communicator and you're like, huh, why are they telling me this? Now I don't trust anybody. Whereas if you can actually point out, here's where you crushed, here's what sounded good, and here's how you adjust it for next time. Next time you go preach that, the next time you talk about this verse, if you say it this way, it's going to be received differently. And once you start hearing that and you start seeing it, seeing yourself get better, it's it's kind of addictive. You know, it's like, oh, I got better. I, I felt it get better. I, it's like, a, like, like in sports, you know, you go to swing the bat and you know the contact with the ball is not as good as you want it to be. And you see that it doesn't hit well. And then all of a sudden, someone throws you a pitch and you make contact because you've been getting feedback on your swing and how to adjust. And you feel it and it hits the bat different. That's fun. Then you're like, okay, the feedback was worth it. The work on the back end was worth it to get up here and to do better than I did before. And so I fell in love with it just in the context of seeing it work. And um, it's still a practice that people still learn how to give feedback. There's still people that are even learning how to give feedback. So they need feedback on their feedback, which is kind of a funny concept. But making sure that the people giving feedback are giving it from a place of hope, um, that they're understanding who they're talking to and understanding how they're 
communicating that they're communicating to see them win, not just to point out what they did wrong. And so all of that is a part of the process of learning how to do it and how to fall in love with it. And so you want people around you, if you're trying to implement a feedback culture, trying to get feedback inside of a mentor relationship, having them believe in you matters a ton. And then having them communicate that clearly. I am telling you, you did a great job in these areas. And here's a couple ways that you can crush. And you can't obviously just come in just chopping because when you're first starting a sermon or first starting a song or leading a ministry, any area of feedback, um, you need to kind of be picky and choosy about which handful of things that you're going to hit first, like the biggest things first, because they can't implement five things at once. But you can one or two. You know, here are the big points. If you just relax on stage, that's going to be the biggest thing. If you just adjust this verbiage on stage, it's going to change a lot about how you feel on that stage. Um, so you kind of are learning how to give feedback in the most effective way. What's, what, is, what is it I want to get out of them in this feedback session? And I would focus on one or two things that are most likely to produce that uh, change in them for the next time. Yeah, I've noticed a uh, a huge benefit to having feedback culture here. Like every time someone starts something that they have they've never done before, like you see growth here that I've never seen before because of like I think it's just because everyone's always trying to give each other advice on how to get better. And so um, that's a super cool thing that we have here that's been implemented here. That's kind of like in the DNA of what we do here. And so uh, a question I have for you, Taylor, is uh, you can't have a mentorship without a student. So in your opinion, what makes a great student? Yeah, I think what makes a good student is a few things. And one of those things is, are you willing to listen? (laughs) I think a lot of times we say we want help or we want feedback or we want to get better at our rate. And it has to sound how we want it to sound or it has to look how we want it to look. And I can't think of very many moments in life where, like, growing and developing has come in the way I wanted it to look. Oftentimes, the areas where I have to be stretched and I have to grow are, they're inconvenient, they're hard, they're difficult. And so when you have a mentor, part of their job is to help you see what you can't see, right? The benefit of a mentor, in my opinion, is they can give you the 10,000-foot view you can't see. And so there's all kinds of times in the process of you becoming the you that God's called you to that the step you need to take you can't quite see yet. And the reason mentors are so valuable is because now they have the ability to say that to you. They have the ability to show you that, speak that to you. But to be a good student, you have to be able to hear it. And I have found in my life that when it comes to a mentor-student relationship, when I've made my mind up, you have full access to help me be the best me. And if that's uncomfortable, if that's inconvenient, if that frustrates me, if that means we have to argue because I'm really upset about the fact that I don't want to do that right now, we have that kind of a relationship so that we can sit here and dialogue because a mentor is going to press you to be the best version of you, a good one. But to be a good student, you have to be able to respond. And I have seen all throughout my life, when I stop growing in an area, it's because I stopped responding. It's because I stopped listening. It's because I stopped putting into effect what was being given. I think a great student starts first and foremost at the decision that I'm not the expert. The fact that I'm a student means I have something to learn. And so the only way you're ever gonna be able to learn is you have to stop speaking long enough. So when you're in room with great men, great women, when you're in rooms with people who are living the life you want to live, it isn't your job to fill the space, it's theirs. So if you'll just turn your ears on, if you'll shut your mouth off and you'll open your heart up, you're gonna wind up catching things that sometimes you don't even know the question to ask. That's what's beautiful, I think, about in a mentor, 
a student relationship is you can go to coffee and learn things you didn't know to ask because you've just created room for them to get to share, right? Some questions you don't even know to ask until someone else shows them to you. So I think at the key of being a great student simply is just listening. You don't have to be the expert. You don't have to fill the gap. Just listen. Trust the voice of the person you've decided is going to lead you in your life and lean into that. The thing that I find interesting, back to the analogy of Samuel and Eli that T.D. Jake sets up so well, is there's a difficulty in distinguishing between the voice of God and the voice of your mentor. Understanding there are some people that need to be in our life that to have authority over us, especially early on in our journey of following Christ. That we need some voices that trump our emotions, that trump our our own logic, that trump every habit we've had in our past. That we say, "All right, God, you've put them in our in my life, and they speak your voice to me. That's what I hear. That's not permanent, but there does need to be some voices in our life." that speak in that way, that speak in the way that Eli spoke to Samuel. Because for a season, as young Christians, as young um, leaders, we're still learning what it looks like to figure out how we feel and how that applies to what we're called to do next, to figure out what we think and whether that is actually logical or it's just bad training or bad habits that we have in our life. And the hard part is figuring out who those people are supposed to be. And once you do, that that takes a lot of work, a lot of prayer. But once you believe they've got your best in mind, and once you believe that they have what you want to have, and you can trust them, then I would go full force in listening. Just hear what they have to say, and maybe spend a season just saying, you know what, even when I disagree, I'm going to do what they've called me to do. I'm going to submit. Maybe pick an amount of time, a year, two years, five months, whatever it looks like. Pick an amount of time and say, even when I disagree, I'm going to do what they've called me to do. And then you're going to ask questions that give them an opportunity to say what they actually feel. Like most of the time we ask these leading questions like, hey, this is a great idea, right? Well, well, maybe I don't. Do you want me to tell you it's a terrible idea or are you asking me in a way that you want me to just affirm what you already believe? Just ask them questions that really are begging them to speak into it. Hey, I have this idea. Is it a terrible idea or is it a good idea? That's a type of question that opens them up to actually tell you. And I don't think it's a good idea. I actually think it's a pretty terrible idea. Here's why. And then let, let it kind of play out the answer and actually listen for a season of time until you go from, that's Eli's voice, now I know what the voice of God sounds like. That's really good. I love that you hit the whole, like, does the mentor have my best interest at heart? <clears throat> and then do, I have what, do they have what I want to have? And the idea of that is like the two best questions I think a student can ask on who their mentor should be. Do they really love me? Do they really care about me? Do they really want to see my best? And do they have the kind of life or are they good in the area I'm trying to develop in in a way that I would want to? And if those are true, then I would say dive in. But when you dive in, there's going to come a point to where I think you have to make your mind up, I trust the fruit. I believe in any healthy student-mentor relationship, there's fruit everywhere. You can see the times when they told you to do something that you didn't want to do and then you activated on it anyways and it worked. You have the moments in your life where it's like, man, I would have never done that on my own, but if she wouldn't have said that to me or if he wouldn't have showed me that, I would have never got there. And so now I can stand here, having known Jared for 15 plus years now, and it's a different conversation for me. Early on, it's like, do I really trust you? Do I really trust you? Do I really trust you? Well, now I trust you. Then the next question is, do you really have like my best at heart? Do you really have my best at heart? Okay, now that's no, true. And then there are the moments where like, I don't want to do it. That doesn't feel good. That doesn't seem right. I'm going to do it anyways. I have enough of those moments now that I can look back and now it's like, I mean, I'm still going to put a fight up because I love to argue, 
But at the end of the day, I'm coming back to the fruit. At the end of the day, I can look back and see, nah, he was right here and they were right there and he was right there. And for you, as you're developing a relationship, whether you're the student, if you're the student, be looking for the fruit, right? Be looking for the fruit. Be looking to see, okay, if they were right there before, then that should give me the faith, the trust, the ability to trust him again. And before long, if you will listen, if you will lean in, if you will apply what your mentor is showing you, you're going to see an insane amount of growth. But I also think it's true as the mentor. Now on this side of the table where I get to lead people, I think the fruit is something you should be reading as well. Like as a mentor, you have X amount of time in life and you have X amount of energy and resources to give to people. And so when it comes to a mentor, how do I choose a student? I think the fruit's there too. Do they listen? Are they teachable? Do they apply the things that we show? And I think as a mentor, you should be looking to make sure that you're investing the best parts of you in, in good soil and people who are going to respond. And so it really wasn't a question we asked yet, but I, now I'm curious, like, what should a mentor be looking for in a student? You know, what, what do you think a mentor should be looking for in deciding, all right, this is a student. This is someone I'm going to choose to spend time in. Uh, this is someone I'm going to give portions of my heart, my life, my energy to. What should we be looking for as mentors? So the biggest thing I'm looking for is activation on what they're called to do. So initially, I may not, I, I may not be in a mentor role with them. So um, I may not get to say, I asked them to do this or I challenged them to do this and I saw them activate on it. But I can see that they've had some areas in their life where they have wrestled or thought through what they're called to do and they activated on the next steps. They didn't make excuses while well, I'm here. I've done that because uh, my childhood or because of what happened to me. They, they've activated on their next step instead of making excuses. That's the biggest thing, which is teachable. Teachability is the is the key word there that somebody is teachable. And I don't I don't gauge you as teachable based on um, just your ability to shake your head and agree with me. So I uh, when I say activate on their next steps, I'm not asking for people that just do what I ask them to do or people that just sound good when we're in the room, but then two weeks later, they've done absolutely nothing with it. I actually prefer the types that activate on it and I'm totally okay with the ones who will bucket at first. We'll be like, no, nah, I'm not, I'm not, I, that sounds crazy. Tell me why you think that works. I don't know. How, how is that? That doesn't even make any sense. That doesn't feel good. I'm not going to want to do that. Um, and then they'll process long enough and then you'll see them doing it. So I'm okay if they don't seem so receptive at the front end, if they take action steps on the back end. So it's activation, not just verbal agreement. So I don't want you to just come to me and say, yeah, that's a great idea. And then I don't see you do anything about it. That's also a waste of my time. So the best students are, are active. Uh, you use this analogy that we heard from a, a campus pastor years ago that um, it's easier to to um, steer a thoroughbred than kick a donkey. I think we've talked about that in the podcast a few few times back, and it's true. Like people that are making moves, even if even if they're sometimes the wrong moves, are way easier to steer and adjust than somebody who's sitting back making excuses, talking about why they can't or what why they didn't, why they didn't activate on what they were called to do. People who are making moves, just trying, just striving to do what God has called them to do is sufficient for me, even if it's not perfect, even if there's mistakes in the process. So activation, I would say, is the biggest word there. So recently I just read a book called Extreme Ownership, and it kind of goes through how like owning all of your mistakes and everything is a is a big part of effective leadership. My question to you is like, how does that play out in mentorship for you? Like, do you agree with that? Is it, you know, have, have you seen that work? Yeah, so that's one of my favorite books, probably a top 10 book of all time. 
And uh, so I agree with it. Um, there is maybe a ditch that you can fall into where there's an extreme version of extreme ownership, where maybe it's a ditch where there's some examples in life where it turns out that you owned something too much. But I absolutely agree that that's a better ditch to fall into than to just basically concede control of your life over to the other ditch and say, well, I just am a product of my environment, so I can't change anything. So I'm going to fall into one ditch or the other. I would much rather as a mentor and as a mentee fall into this ditch that says, no, I have control over my choices. I may not have control over my environment, but I do have control over my reaction to that environment, to what people did to me, to what happened to me. I have control over how I make the next choice, make the next decision ask the next question to the mentor, ask the next question to the mentee. And so love the book, love the concept. And um, it really is kind of a teachability factor. If you can't, if you can't own a mistake, if you can't own that, I had a part to play. And it doesn't mean that there are other parts. It, It doesn't mean that in an argument that somebody didn't say something they shouldn't have, but you also reacted in a way that was unhealthy too. And you had a choice to de-escalate or escalate the situation. And so in a mentor relationship and a mentee relationship, the ability to go further faster in life is going to fall on whether you can own your mistake quicker, whether you can just say, yes, in that message, I need to adjust what I said. Going back to that feedback concept, yes, you're right. I can get better in my ministry if I develop my leaders better. I can get better in my small group if I ask better questions and maybe stop talking for a little bit and let the rest of the group talk. I can get better in this worship song if I adjust some of my exhortation time or I adjust some of these notes or some of the, the, even my musicians having feedback for them so that we can lead this in a stronger way. I can get better and owning that is the difference between staying right where you're at and moving forward and growing and getting to be all that God has called you to be and to go back to Samuel and Eli to be able to hear the voice of God right if I'm going to hear the voice of God I've got to be able to hear the times that I made mistakes if I can't hear that I made mistakes I don't think I can hear God because God is telling me to repent in certain areas and say I'm going the wrong way I'm going to turn and go your way, God. And if I can't own that I'm going the wrong way, I'm never going to be able to hear the voice of God telling me, turn. I've got more in store for you. I've got a bigger plan for you. I've got something for you. Stop going the wrong direction. Turn this way. So all the way back to the beginning, hearing the voice of God is extreme ownership. That's part of repentance. It's part of coming to God and saying, whoops, I made a mistake. Help me to do better. I don't want to do that again. And that's that's a part of extreme ownership. Yeah, that's really good, man. I really uh, like the way that you tied extreme ownership into the verse that we were talking about with Samuel and Eli. Um, I really appreciate you being here today. I've enjoyed just sitting back and kind of listening to the wisdom that you bring and that Taylor brings. And uh, yeah, it's been a really good episode and I appreciate you guys. And uh, this has been the No Walls Podcast. We'll see you guys later.